those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. We've perhaps heard this phrase before in schools that we grew up in or by politicians today. And the basic meaning of what is being said is that if we do not learn from our past mistakes, we will inevitably commit the same mistakes over and over and over again. And this can be applied to diplomatic relations, personal relationships, governmental laws, and a whole host of other issues. But the point remains, if we don't learn from the mistakes of others or ourselves in the past, we are likely to commit them again here today. And this can certainly be applied to the word of God as well. If we don't learn from the mistakes of our ancestors in the past, we are doomed to make the same mistakes here today. This is perhaps why God, in his wisdom, includes so many accounts of Israel and their continued failings over and over and over again. Their mistakes were recorded so that we wouldn't make the same mistakes as they once did. And so this brings us then to Zechariah chapter 11 here this morning. And it's in this chapter that we are really given a pattern of history that we are to learn from. A pattern of mistakes made in the history by God's people. And so as we observe these mistakes of old, the hope is that God's people here today will not continue to make the same mistakes they did. So as we consider this pattern of history in Zechariah 11, what is it that often repeats itself? What is this pattern of history that repeats itself among God's people? Well, here it is. God saves his people, his people are unfaithful, and then the unfaithful suffer. God saves his people, his people are unfaithful, and then the unfaithful suffer. And we see this repeated over and over and over again. So please look with me then at Zechariah 11 as we consider the first part of this history. God saves his people. Even as we left off last week, we remember that God promised to rescue his people. That's what he's doing. He's removing any barrier to do this. And so this is the promised salvation that continues on even into chapter 11. God is freeing his people from the foreign nations around them. And this includes Lebanon, which boasted in their cedar trees, and Bashan, which boasted in their lush forests. These countries were well known for their high quality wood. And even King Solomon in the prime of Israel would order wood from these countries because of how high quality it was. However, these countries now would face God's judgment as they stood opposed against God's people and God himself. And much like Tyre and Sidon back in chapter 9, which arrogantly positioned themselves against God, by taking advantage of his people, so again, these people, like them, stood opposed to God. And so we're given a picture here in these opening verses of these nations weeping and wailing for all that they loved, all that they treasured above God is being burned up. And just as Tyre's wealth was scattered across the seas, so their wealth is completely eviscerated. And just as the lions would roar when their habitat and comfort is destroyed, 
So they too, these lions that are preying on God's people, so they'll roar in dismay as their luscious home is completely consumed in judgment. And so it would be in this way that God would continue to save his people from these evil shepherds that we covered last week. He would not be indifferent to the pains of his people, but he would bring his people comfort and injustice as he judged their enemies persecuting them and deliver them. And so as we see this salvation in history, as we see God act for his people, we can find comfort that God will act for us as well. We can bring this same hope and comfort to people who are victims of atrocious abuse. So in seeing these words to Israel, we see a saving God who is not indifferent to the pains of his people, but he sees and he will act. And while this word of judgment and salvation offers hope to us as God's people, it simultaneously acts as a warning to those who are tempted to participate in acts of oppression against others. It serves as a warning to those who are oppressing others, and unless such people repent of their evil ways and turn to God, they too will be consumed by God's fierce judgment. And so in reading this text, we should either hear these words not only as comforting, but also a warning that we must heed. So again, in these opening verses, it's a picture of God continuing to save his people as we've been seeing for the past couple of weeks. He would save them and there would be great rejoicing. He would free them and they would experience salvation. That's what we've been covering for the past couple of weeks. But as we transition then into verse four, there is an abrupt change in tone. Notice that with me. Instead of there being pure joy and happiness at the salvation that God's going to give them, there is suddenly a sobering reality check. And this reality check is given as the history of Israel is really contemplated in a parable-like form for us here this morning. And so as we come to verses 4 through 7, 17, which are incredibly highly debated, I think that these verses are meant to help the ancient Israelite hear their own history in parable-like terms so that they might learn from their history and not repeat the same mistakes of old by rejecting God, their king, when he does come to free them indeed. So in the cryptic, parable-like ways of Jesus, so Zechariah tells the story of Israel. And as we've covered so far, it begins with a picture of God saving his people. For God calls Zechariah in verse 4 to shepherd the flock intended for slaughter. That is, take on the role of the shepherd to care for the helpless flock destined to die. And here, as we've been seeing across the chapters, God is the good shepherd. And he is intervening to save the hopeless flock of Israel. God is the good shepherd and his people are the sheep. So as this scene opens up to us, God takes it upon himself to save his people who are about to be harmed. This first group, we're told, are those who would buy them and slaughter them and are not punished. 
And when we consider Israel's history of old, we think of the foreign countries that God just got done judging. We think of Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon, who took Israelites into captivity, who ravaged them without remorse. But then there are also those who harmed them, and they were the leaders of Israel. These own kings and religious leaders would use and abuse their sheep and would enrich themselves at the cost of their people. And then they would turn around and say, look, God's made us rich when they were selling out his people. They would show no compassion to their own people. And so we're given a snapshot, a picture of Israel's situation for centuries. A helpless flock that's been taken advantage of over and over and over again with no true leader to help them or lead them except God. But then even as we come to verse 6, there is this ominous warning and foreshadowing that God would not continue to shepherd this flock for long. He would not forever be compassionate upon these people that he's rescued. And we're not told why yet. We're not told why. So, in accordance with God's word, Zechariah does what God calls him to do. He shepherds the flock intended for slaughter. He takes care of the flock with two staffs, one representing God's favor toward them, and the other representing unity. He brings grace and favor to his people along with unity. He unites them together. He protects them. And so Zechariah, in short here, plays the role of a good shepherd as he symbolically cares for the flock of God who was hated by all. And in some sense, this is exactly what we've seen God do in the past two chapters, right? He would be the good shepherd who would take care of his sheep. He intervenes and provides for his people and rescues them. He eliminates evil shepherds. He provides salvation. And so Zechariah's care of these sheep symbolically represents God's care for his people in history. Now, as we consider the sheep, God's people, what, what, what should we be expecting here? Well, I think if we're tracking here, we would expect God's people to be thankful, right? They should be grateful for what God has done for them. I mean, he saved their lives when they were destined for destruction. He kept them from getting eaten alive by evil shepherds and kings. He showed them steadfast love, kindness, and favor. So I think we expect great thankfulness, right? Thankfulness, joy, gratitude for all that the shepherd's done for him. But is this what we find here in the text before us? Unfortunately, we don't find that at all. Instead, we find that the sheep representing the people of God are unfaithful. And that's what we see next. The people are unfaithful to their saving God. And as the text tells us in verse 8, they detest, they revile the good shepherd. They take for granted all the love and kindness they were shown, and they spurn the grace shown toward them. This unfaithfulness is further shown when the shepherd requests payment for his service to the sheep in verses 12 and 13. And it's less about actually getting paid, and it's more about making it clear to the sheep that he's done with them. He's done with them due to their unfaithfulness. And I think the hope is 
that the sheep recognize, oh no, we're about to lose our shepherd. He's saying he's done with us due to our unfaithfulness. And so the hope is that the unfaithful would repent and turn back to God. And so by requesting payment here, it's supposed to bring gravity and weight to the sins of the sheep. It is meant to bring gravity to their unfaithfulness to God. It's supposed to serve as a wake-up call to them that they've been unfaithful and that God is about to remove his care for them. And hopefully by bringing this level of gravity to the, gravity to the situation, they'll again turn back to him. So do the sheep get it? Do they heed this major warning to them? No, they don't, do they? They spit instead in the face of their shepherd. And this is made clear as they offer the shepherd 30 pieces of silver for his service to them. Now, I'm guessing this doesn't really mean much to you. But in Exodus 21:32, 30 pieces of silver was the amount paid for a dead slave. And so by paying him this much, they were basically equating what the shepherd had done for them with that of a dead slave. This is incredibly insulting to say the least. It would have been better if they didn't pay him anything. But I think that's the point. Not only did they care for God's love and favor shown toward them, but they despised it and they rejected it. And so I think this also colors in the future when we see Jesus on the scene as well. And he's rejected for 30 pieces of silver. So as we continue this parable-like story, they take all the good that the shepherd has done for them and they throw it away. And even worse, they insult the one who sacrificed for them. And so with holy sarcasm, God says, throw this money out, throw it to the potter, I'm done with these people if this is how they are going to value me. And as we again look at Israel's history, where they despised the grace of God shown to them, and they basically spat in his face, just as this story tells us, there are at least two historical accounts, I think, that we should be thinking of. The first is the Exodus, where God delivers his people from Egypt in slavery. We've been reading through this account but immediately after God rescues his people from Egypt, the people are immediately unfaithful to him, like almost out the gate. They grumble, they complain in the wilderness rather than faithfully trust their God to provide for them. They worship a golden calf instead of worshiping the God who brought them out of Egypt. And when they are about to enter the promised land God gives to them, they act with unfaithfulness and despair as 10 of the 12 spies says, we can't do it. We can't overcome. And so this pattern that we're seeing here repeats itself over and over and over and over again. And eventually, right before Moses passes away, God speaks to him and he says this, you are about to rest with your ancestors and these people, these people will soon prostitute themselves with the foreign gods of the land that they are entering. They will abandon me. They will break covenant with me. And my anger will burn against them on that day. I will abandon them and hide my face from them so that they will become easy prey. 
Many troubles and afflictions will come to them. And on that day, they will say, haven't these troubles come to us because our God is no longer with us? And I will certainly hide my face on that day because of all the evil that they have done by turning to other gods. So as we see what happens in Deuteronomy, so we see the same in this parable-like story in Zechariah. They detest the God who saved him. They spurn his grace and they turn away to other gods. And so they will suffer calamity. He will allow them to encounter the troubles that they've brought upon themselves as they walk away from their living God who saved them. So this is the first account I think that we are to be reminded of. But the second account then comes from 1 Samuel 8, verses 5 through 8. And it's here again where God has taken care of Israel. He's taking care of them as a good shepherd does. But despite all the good that God has done for Israel as their shepherd, the people are done with God. They are unfaithful to him again. And this becomes evident as they demand, they demand that, that Samuel gives them a king. And as our text reads, they demand that Samuel appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. We're done with our God. We want to be like the nations around us who have kings. And so when they said this, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. And so he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. And they are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day. Abandoning me and worshiping other gods. So as we track the record of what Israel has done in the course of their history, so Zechariah tells it again in a cryptic way. God shows kindness to his people. He saves them. He rescues them. But the people are unfaithful to their saving God, and worse yet, they insult him. And as a result, God leaves them be. He says, fine, have it your way. So what we find here serves as a sobering warning to not only them, but to us, not to make the same mistakes of those who have gone before us in departing the living God who gives us life. For if we do, it will inevitably lead to the final part in the cycle of history that we always see, and that is the unfaithful suffer. In verse 9, we see a summary statement of Israel's fate time and time again by Zechariah as they abandon God. As the sheep abandon the good shepherd, they inevitably face death and calamity without his protection. They face severe hunger, even as they begin to eat each other alive. And so the natural consequence of walking away from the good shepherd is the path to death and despair. But then we also see at least three other consequences from their actions as well. As they detest their God and their shepherd, we, we first see a removal of, of favor and grace. This is made clear as Zechariah then takes the staff named favor and he breaks it in two, symbolizing the breaking of the covenant he had made with Israel. 
And all that's picturing for us is that God's people are not walking according to God's way. They have broken covenant with the living God. And so his favor toward them is gone. It's eliminated. Only the curse of the covenant remains toward them due to their unfaithfulness. So Zechariah then proceeds to break the second staff used to tend the sheep. And we're told this symbolizes the removal of unity and brotherhood. And when God's people stop following God as their good shepherd, there cannot be true unity and brotherhood among the people of God. It evaporates into thin air. And in the case of Israel, we see this happen. As the kingdom of Solomon, Israel, is split in two after his death. As the northern kingdom takes on the name of Israel or Ephraim and the southern kingdom of Judah. And just as Zechariah speaks of these sheep just devouring each other, so we see this as they go to war with each other and bring about great desolation. And so as we come to the end of the text here, we finally see that there is the removal of protection as the natural judgment of God upon his sheep. If they don't want him protecting them, he won't. He'll allow evil shepherds to step in and take his place. And to demonstrate this, Zechariah then is called to play the role of a evil, foolish shepherd. If they won't have God as their shepherd king, they will have a foolish, evil one instead. And don't we all do that when we don't worship the one true God? Contrasted with the good shepherd who cares for his sheep, this shepherd is the antithesis in every way possible. For he will not care for the people who are perishing and dying. He will not seek the lost or heal the broken. He will not sustain the healthy sheep, but he will instead devour the flesh of the sheep and tear off their hooves. So as the people of God abandon God, they settle for other leaders, other evil shepherds who devour them instead. And this would happen to Israel over and over and over again. God would allow this judgment to fall on them through evil shepherds, but then he would simultaneously judge them for their evil acts. So as we evaluate this picture at large here this morning, and we see this cycle of history repeat over and over, God saves his people, His people are unfaithful, and then the unfaithful suffer. As we see this bleak picture of our history, I think we might wonder, are we just simply doomed to repeat this again and again and again? Is there any real hope for us to get out of this cycle that we have found ourselves in? And so this leads us then to the most significant thing we must learn this morning and do. And that is, Jesus ends this pattern of failure and unfaithfulness that we have seen from God's people throughout the centuries. For although our ancestors in humanity have been unfaithful to God over and over and over and over again since the beginning, Jesus never once failed in his life and ministry. And where Adam and Eve fell to the temptation of the devil in the garden, When everything was going their way in the perfect climate and conditions, we see Jesus resist the devil in the worst of conditions in the desert. And he does it perfectly. And where Judah would sell out Joseph for silver, 
Jesus, even as we've read here, would be sold out for silver to save his people. And where Israel would continue to break the law of God over and over and over again, Jesus would embody the law perfectly in every conceivable way possible. And so Jesus ends the pattern of failure that we see throughout the course of human history. He is faithful in all the ways that we as God's people have been unfaithful. And so we look to him when we find ourselves in this pattern. But more than just being faithful in all these ways, Jesus volunteers to suffer for the unfaithful. And by suffering for the unfaithful, he provides us the opportunity to gain back everything that was once lost that we see in these verses today. And so Jesus, as the good shepherd, comes to us and as John 10, 11 tells us, he lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the unfaithful to save them. And he does this as he offers up his life on the cross so that our sins, our failings, our unfaithfulness are attributed to him and his faithfulness attributed to us. And so where we were once lost, where we did not have God's favor, protection, or unity with each other, Jesus begins to reverse all of this at a moment in time. And he does it by laying down his life for us so that we could have unity, true brotherhood with one another, so that we could truly know the grace and favor of our God who loves us. Jesus in every way embodies the grace that we so desperately need each and every day. And so even though we would repeat this cycle of history again, when Jesus came to rescue us, and we would reject him, and we would put him on a cross, God in his infinite wisdom, mercy, and love would redeem us despite our falling into this pattern over and over and over again. And because of this finished work on the cross, we no longer have to fall into this pattern of destruction. For we, as the chosen people of God, can be faithful because of Jesus. We can have unity with one another in Christ. And we can have God's grace showered upon us as Jesus himself comes and rescues us. So this morning, if you feel like you have just failed over and over again for the for the hundredth time, know that no matter how many times you failed, there is hope. And if you feel like you've ever messed up so bad that you can't recover, know that this isn't the case. For if God can turn around the evil death of his son, Jesus, to bring us redemption and salvation, so he can do the same with all of our failings and all of our shortcomings. And so as we see Jesus stop this pattern of failure, we are called to entrust ourselves to him. For he is our good and faithful shepherd. So if you get nothing else, get that here this morning. Second, then we find that as we look at Jesus' pattern of shepherding, it really does serve as a pattern for all of his under-shepherds. As we've observed from the text both this week and last week, what is it that good shepherds are to do? 
They are to help the flock faithfully follow God in all things. They are to protect the flock, not just physically, but spiritually as well. Their job is to feed them the word of God and not to deviate from it to the left or to the right. And their job is to continue to steer the people of God towards God faithfully all the days of their life. And so as we take this text and we look at what shepherds are supposed to be, we look at pastors and say, this is what your calling is. Your calling as a pastor, as a under-shepherd, isn't to be the best speaker in the world. It's not to be the most charismatic, popular, hip, or to have the most dynamic personality in the world, but our job as pastors, as your pastors, is to help you faithfully follow this Jesus. And this is part of the reason why, as a church, we strive to have shepherding visits with all of the family units in our church for our calling, our main responsibility as pastors, as shepherds, is to help you break the pattern of history and to follow our God faithfully. So as we strive, as Aaron, Steve, and I strive toward this end for you, we need your help. We need your help desperately because, you may have not guessed this, we're not perfect. We're not perfect at all. We're human. We make mistakes. We're prone to sin And we need grace just like you. And so as we strive to be like Jesus, to act as his faithful under-shepherds to you, we need your prayers. We need your prayers to be everything that we're supposed to be. So if you are not already doing so, pray. Pray for Steve, Aaron, and myself. Pray that 1 Peter 5, 2, and 3 would be true for us every day of our lives. And that we would shepherd God's flock among you, not out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have us. Not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Pray for us that we would embody the likeness of Christ in this way as we seek to care for you. And then also pray that we, would avoid all the pitfalls of the evil shepherd that we find here. May we, as your pastors, never use our position over this flock for self-seeking, self-serving manners at the expense of the sheep. For even as we read in this text, there is severe judgment for the evil shepherds who devour God's sheep and they will face his wrath on that final day. And so as a plurality of pastors, we seek to keep each other accountable in this way, but you are called to the same. So as we observed of this text, the body of Christ, we are all called to follow the one who has remained faithful for all of his days. We look to Jesus who reverses the pattern of history that we've seen set forth. And so let us cling to Christ as he holds us to himself. Let us follow Jesus together as the body of Christ until we see our chief shepherd face to face. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And though we are unfaithful, though we make mistakes each and every day of our lives, even though we have fallen flat countless times, we thank you, Jesus, that you never have and that you remain the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and that we can rely on you to save us and redeem us from all of our mistakes, all of our failings. 
And we thank you, Jesus, that you have given us the Holy Spirit, which now works in us to cultivate a people who are faithful, who are capable of following you and loving you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So as we see in the pattern of history unfold, may we heed this warning and cling to Christ. May we repent of sin wherever it is revealed and again turn to the faithfulness of Jesus and the forgiveness he offers. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.